the most interesting radio show on planet Earth. The Weekend Variety Wireless. On Radio Live. Good evening, everybody. Welcome along to the Saturday edition of the Weekend Variety Wireless. Gosh, you people are great. Um, thank you so much, the Facebook community, for helping spot some things and uh, heads up for New Zealand accents uh, and lame uses, as if there's any other type of um, the criterion in the Southern Hemisphere as a skytey thing. Keep your eyes out. Thank you very much for all your help. Media Stick tomorrow will um, show you what we've harvested. That'll be after 8 o'clock tomorrow night. And also tomorrow evening, an early heads up. Uh, an Outsiders with the World War One theme as we run towards the 100th anniversary of Armistice on the 11th of November. Uh, the story of... William Edward Sanders, our only maritime VC from World War One. It's grim. A second later, one of the guns hit one of the German sailors and his body exploded and a large portion hit the commander and knocked him into the sea. There's a bit more than that, of course. OK, science this hour, and the Royal Society divvy out their medals. This is the most prestigious science... Um, uh, awards, prize, things that you can get. There are a whole lot of awards. The Supreme Award, Master Scientist 2018. Uh, that, that's called the Rutherford Medal. Uh, it went to a mathematician. Uh, it's kind of hard to explain what he does. Uh, we'll, we'll maybe get him on next week or, or the week after. He can keep, but there's a cat who does some amazing work with regard to gravity and black holes. It's good friend was of Stephen Hawking. So he's a good chat and he's got an amazing history behind him as well. Uh, he came to New Zealand as an immigrant from the Netherlands and it's a bit of a story there as well. So he won the Hector Medal for being very smart in his fields. Black holes are kind of hard to explain but there's uh, a, a, a lot of story and human stories regarding Matt Visser, the Royal Society's Hector Medal recipient, ahead of Grant Smithies and the astronomy piece later this hour. Next up, hear from Matt Visser, a special science report today. Good evening. Tuned in to the Weekend Variety Wireless. A special science report, effectively a double cosmology hit. Grant Christie coming up later this hour with all the astronomy news and our interviewee, I suspect, knows Grant Christie because some of their subjects intersect. To the meat of the matter, the Royal Society is one of our most prestigious scientific organisations and every year they give out some awards. The Hector Medal is for outstanding work in chemical physical sciences or mathematical and information sciences and the recipient of this, Matt Visser, uh, his special subject, wormholes, black holes and other subjects of gravity. This is meaty stuff. A round of applause and congratulations for the medal, first of all, Matt. Well, thank you very much there. It's a great honour to have this medal awarded. Matt, of course, at the School of Mathematics and Stats at the Victoria University of Wellington. 
What and who inspired you to embark on a career in physics and maths before we go into what your work is? I would say somewhere around high school I realised I was pretty good at this stuff and I was the first of my family to ever go to university. After a couple of years I realised, hey, this is working very, very well. And so I really have to thank my parents, both now deceased, but they would have been very proud because they provided a marvellous home environment for me and my siblings to grow up and do the best we possibly could in terms of academia and professional outcomes. Were they academic at all? Could they help you out with your homework? My parents? Yeah. <laughs> uh, they didn't get past high school. Wow. Okay. Simply the opportunities were not there. They were part of the Dutch migration from the 1950s, which meant they'd spent their teenage years under Nazi occupation in World War II. This is not a good way to actually get, shall we say, advanced academic training. Yeah, yeah. Um, typically a hindrance, isn't it? Yes. Bloody hell and the hell that the Netherlands went through with that starvation as well. Were, that, were they there then during the occupation of that, during that time? Uh, yes, they were in different parts of the Netherlands. So my mother was in the part that did face serious starvation. My father was hiding from the Germans in a farm district, but that meant because it was a farm district, there was was actually much more food on a regular basis. Mm. It was the uh, city areas near Amsterdam that wound up facing most of the starvation issues. Yeah. Most people are scared of maths. Do you notice this? Yes. A certain fraction of population just gets terrified as soon as you try doing some higher mathematics. But that's only part of the population. Other people, if you're careful and you lay things out in a logical way, you'd be surprised how far people can actually get. The typical choke point is doing differential and integral calculus. Mm -hmm. Okay, if you've got that under control, the differential and integral calculus are probably the standard mathematical tools if you want to do any form of theoretical physics or even high-level chemistry and to some extent also high-level theoretical biology at this stage. Right, okay. We won't unpack everything that that is uh, yep. completely. We'll just get on to your work and what you do with it because we don't want to frighten right. the children yep. with differential calculus. Gravity, wormholes, all that sort of stuff. I'm not a physicist or an astronomer or anything, but I hear around the traps that right. there's something wrong with gravity. There are ongoing uh, mysteries about it. Yes and no. We have a very, very good model of gravity for the solar system. We have a very good model. This is Einstein's theory of general relativity. It works very well, except for a couple of nagging issues that really worry us just a little bit. So I think you're referring to dark energy and dark matter? No, why gravity is so weak compared to the other forces. Oh, the weakness. Well... Some people are trying to make a mountain out of a molehill there, but I think it just boils down to, hey, you've got a number of different things, one of them's weaker than the other. I know people talk about the weak gravity conjecture, but I'm not too worried about that particular aspect. It just boils down to saying there's a big separation of scales between the size of atoms Mm -hmm. and then the natural energy scale at which uh, gravity becomes strongly interacting. That's an oddity, but it's not a serious problem, certainly not for general relativity. The issues where things get odder are, first, if you're looking at the uh, structure of the galaxy, 
about 90% of the galaxy's mass is missing in action, meaning we can't see it, we can only detect it through its gravitational effect. Mm. That's a little bit odd. It's the big black elephant in the room at the moment, yes. isn't it? It's the exactly. dark matter, and then we could talk about dark energy, but yeah. re regarding gravity, let's talk this annoying stuff that's hanging about, ruining oh, yeah. all our previous conjectures about how the world no. worked. Any thoughts from you on how this might be resolved? Are there any chances that we've got gravitational theory wrong instead? What is likely to happen there is that we will wind up extending Einstein gravity in some sense rather than showing that it's wrong because the parts of Einstein gravity that we can test work very well. The solar system tests work very well. The lensing tests looking at these cosmological lenses, they're all over the show and are pretty much doing what we expect. The test for black hole candidates, I mean, you have to be indirect there. You look at things that are cold, dark and heavy and you try and then fit them to the predictions of black hole physics and things are working pretty well there. So there's really, well... Two observational areas where things are a little bit strained and one theoretical, okay? Mm. And the two observational ones are these ones you mentioned, dark energy and dark matter. Mm. Between dark energy and dark matter, then the total energy budget of the universe, 95% of it is stuff that we can't see directly. And stuff like the stars and planets and so on only make up 5% of all of the froth sitting on top of this extra dark stuff. I find that personally disturbing, but <laughs> the alternatives... I mean, of course, there are people who try and come up with models for how to get around dark uh, matter. But those alternatives are, in my professional opinion, they're still worse. You realise after a bit of analysis that you've got a model that is significantly messier than just saying you've got some dark stuff out there. Right. So it becomes a professional judgment. Same thing with the dark energy, with the overall expansion of the universe. There's some things we know extremely accurately. Other things we know to maybe 5-10% level. If we're counting, say, photons in the cosmic microwave background, we know the shape of the microwave background fantastically. We know the temperature of the microwave background to three, four significant figures. That's that famous look... big oval turquoise blotchy thing, the image, exactly. isn't it? Exactly. Yeah. Yep. And you can see these little fluctuations, and these little fluctuations are one point in a million. But we can measure these things at one point in a million, and those things we can e measure with very high accuracy. But if you want to say the distance to our distant galaxy... We're still looking at about 5-10% slop there. So some things are very, very accurately measured. Some other things are not so accurately measured. And that's just something we still have to live with. And we're trying to improve that. Okay. All right. Your specialist area is black holes. Um, <coughs> also, you know, that, that's partnered with Stephen Hawking's yep. uh, work as well. Did you know him? Yes. I'd met him several times in several places and I've visited Cambridge and I've seen him there and I've, I've seen him at various places in the United States as well. And you presented a talk on yes. his 60th birthday at Cambridge. Yes. Among other things, he worked on this thing called the chronology protection conjecture, which is if you take naive general relativity 
It's distressingly easy to build time machines. Basically, the physicist community doesn't like time machines because you then have to basically redo all the physics from the ground up. Stephen pointed out that there are good reasons for thinking that these naive time machines don't actually work once you start looking at the technical details. Are you talking about time paradox problems? Among other things. Okay. Time paradoxes are both bootstrap paradoxes and um, grandfather paradoxes. The bootstrap paradox is if you get something for nothing. Okay. You go back in time and hand your future self a copy of the scientific paper you've just written. So no one actually has to write the paper because he just copies it from you. And okay, that's a bootstrap paradox. Uh The grandfather paradox is when you go back and you kill one of your ancestors, at which stage you go, okay, but your ancestor is dead. So what happens to you? Uh You can actually analyze these things carefully and logically and with a whole lot of differential calculus. But the bottom line is we don't know how to build these time machines, and the chances of us building them are pretty minuscule. And they should be here. Yep, they should be here. (laughs) If the time machines are developed in the future, we should see them now unless... Yeah. But more to the point, the reason scientists worry about these things is we're really trying to take the known theories and push them to their limits to see if they break in an interesting way. Mm. If, say, we had gone off in this direction and found that something extremely odd was going on, it might have given us hints for a upgrade of general relativity or something like that. In fact, what's happened is it hasn't. By and large, we can say standard general relativity with a little bit of quantum field theory thrown on top of it mm. is good enough and covers 95% of what we see in the universe. Right. Okay. It's been pretty robust, this general relativity, both yep. special and general, both isn't special it? and general. Yeah. But there is this intersection where quantum mechanics oh. takes over. And, of course, there was that huge argument between Niels Bohr and Albert Einstein. They, they couldn't resolve yep. the two. And physics still hasn't, has it? Are they, Or can they exist yep. in separate magisteria, just one for the very little and one for the very big? Um... Most of the time, yes. (laughs) Most of the time. Um, In some sense, they're different magisteria, but we're starting to do some experiments that look at the interface between quantum physics and classical physics. Where is it? That is tricky. The naively, it's between the very small and the very large, but the actual situation is more subtle than that. It's when you have a horizon interacting with quantum physics. It's when you have things that are reasonably large compared to Planck's constant. It's when you've got these exotic states that people are developing in nanophysics. We're starting to see entire molecules that are in Schrodinger's cat state. That's definitely something that people will be looking at over the next few decades. My personal feeling there is we don't understand enough about what the collapse of the wave function really is all about. Okay.
Just regarding time travel, we're doing it all the time in one direction, of yep. course. And you can muck around with it, can't you, we're using relativity. If I was to fly, magic wand stuff, yep. if I was to fly to, oh, let's go to Andromeda at about, I don't know, 80% of the speed of the light and, and, and yep. come back here to Earth, Earth would be much, 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 much older. I'd be meeting maybe a different species. Yes, but that's not a particular difficult thing to actually understand. It's the point is that one of the two of you is taking a curved path through space-time. Yeah. That is not where there's actually any big controversy. And, in fact, if you've got a little GPS device, well, the people who designed GPS had to worry about these issues when they set up the GPS system. Yeah, and to just ramp up the quantities, the difference could be uh, hundreds of years, couldn't it? We could. Oh, yeah. I could go away, come back yep. to the Earth, what it would be like in a thousand years. No problem, no law of physics disturbed. It all fits with the numbers. Yep. That all fits with the numbers. I mean, we've already seen experiments on that with elementary particles, you know, have lifetimes that are modified by how fast they're moving with respect to us and so on. That bit is fine. The issues in, well, in special relativity, we haven't given up. I mean, we are still testing special relativity consistently. We know that special relativity is describing the real universe to a very, very high level. But it's a mistake to think we've given up looking for possible violations of special relativity. We're still looking, mm. but we found that there are either non-existent or so small that they can be explained away by other just experimental uncertainties. Ah. Okay. Whereas dark energy are things that are one way or another, they are big enough that they are not in the noise. These are things that are pretty clearly out there and the question is uh, simply, what is it really telling us? Do we need to modify general relativity? If so, do we modify in a simple way? Or, do we, uh, or as I said, the present modifications that people have come up with are quite ugly. Mm. And All right. Yep. Unsatisfying, perhaps. Unsatisfying. Right. And then you toss quantum physics on top of gravity, and, I mean, eventually, when you go to high enough energies, gravity becomes stronger at high energies, and at a suitably high energy, the gravitational force between two atoms becomes comparable to the electric forces. Oh, good God, and, really? Yeah. You just take, say, a particle accelerator and bash a couple of protons together. At low energies, electricity is the dominant effect, and gravity is weak, weak, weak. But gravity couples to total energy. So if you crank up the energy on your particle accelerator, eventually you get to a stage where the gravitational forces are just as strong as the electric and nuclear forces. But that's a theoretical thing. We were nowhere near doing this experimentally. I mean, even with the Large Hadron Collider, oh. we're still off by... Oh, about a factor of 10 to the 15. Uh, 10 oh. with about 15 zeros after it. Oh, oh, gee, that's a way away. Yeah, it's a way away. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, now, just a, a received knowledge of those who maybe dabble in this or are interested in it a bit. Black holes are gateways to another universe. Is this just sci-fi conjecture? Do we? Is it? What do you reckon? The simple black holes of general relativity are not a gateway to another universe. They are a gateway to you crashing into a singularity and dying very quickly. 
If you want to make it a gateway to another universe, you do have to add extra things to Einstein's general relativity. Okay. We do look at these things because, you know, you want to look at the options, you want to tell the astronomers, okay, at some stage you tell the astronomers, look for this, this, and this. If you see these things, we will be very excited. If you see the other things, it's like, that's great, it means Einstein was right. So don't try going into a wormhole, you're not coming back again, and you're going to be dead very quickly. All right. I've noticed string theory people do strut around looking very clever. What do you make of string theory, this weird thing that nobody can observe? It... Oh, God. It's not so much that no one can observe it as that string theory is an extremely general, flexible framework that unfortunately makes very few specific predictions. Right. In fact, I would say it makes zero specific predictions. It was an attempt at building a unified quantum theory of gravity. I would say there's at least two other competitors out there right now that while they don't have the same public recognition, are at least seriously competitive. Okay. okay. I'll, I'll put that to Michio Kaku tomorrow because I have a chat with him. He's big, <laughs> he's big on string theory. Okay. Um, lastly, a, a very human sort of question. Scientists, mathematicians in, in history that you admire, and if you could bring one with one of these unlikely or perhaps impossible yep. time machines from the past to the present, who would you pick and why? Oh, God, the most obvious one would be Einstein. But there's a there's a whole selection of people who, if I had all the possibilities... For instance, you've probably heard of Richard Feynman. Yeah. I mean, he's... I mean, I met him as well before he uh, died in the, uh, what was it, in the late 80s. There's a number of people like that who resonate down the years and who would be suitable candidates. Hey, James Clerk Maxwell, Maxwell equations. There's a whole slew of people, okay? Yeah. <laughs> There's a whole slew, and let's just leave it at that. Okay. Maxwell, famous for being Scottish and famous for um, showing in mathematical form how light and magnetism are sort of all photons so, going everywhere, and he put it into equations so people could muck yep. with it. And that's it. He put them into classical equations that can be analysed using the tools of differential calculus that engineers and uh, physicists can use to build various pieces of equipment. Yeah. That's the thing. Once you can write it in an equation, it means often you have a chance to manipulate it and turn it into something technological and turn it into something that actually does something for you. Yeah. And he would be thrilled to know what we've learnt. But these people were smart, and they would be smart today too. Maybe a couple of months he'd be up to speed and could really help us out with dark matter. Possibly. We've been looking at dark matter for now about 50 years. Dark energy for maybe 20 years. There's a lot of smart cookies working on it. But, uh, yep, these are going to be hard problems. Oh, well. Congratulations, the Hector Medal for um, Physical Sciences. We've been speaking with Matt Visser from School of Mathematics, Victoria University of Wellington. A round of applause, well done, and thank you so much for telling us a bit about your subject. Thank you very much, there. <laughs> no it's worries. Great. Okay. Okay. You're tuned in. To Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. Astronomy Today with Dr. Grant Christie.
Grant. Hello. Hi, Graham. Gosh, you've had a busy week. There have been some clear skies and work going on at Auckland's observatory. One Tree Hill. One Tree Hill. Yeah, we're rebuilding the uh, original Zeiss telescope, which, mm. yeah, hundreds of thousands of people have looked through. It's uh, yeah. Many of them, it's probably the first telescope they ever looked through. Are you get, getting uh, rid of spiders that have gotten uh, in or something? No, it's really that it's sort of 1960s uh, technology oh, yeah. uh, to give it another 30 years of really good life modifying it and modernizing its uh, uh, tracking mechanism so that it will be able to be tracked controlled by computer remotely right i mean conceivably in a year or two people could uh, in theory log in from the outside if they had the password and oh. run it remotely i i, I run the uh, uh, research telescope at oh. the observatory remotely now right. i don't actually go to the building i can operate it and sharing that work with tim natouche uh, from aut university who works with me mm-hmm. we toss up as to who does the late <laughs> I got it last night. <laughs> okay, yeah. now we have some complimentary video links up on the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage. If you click on the bit that says click here for this weekend's rundown, pretty much near the top, you will see the various things that uh, we're talking about today for astronomy and the relevant links. This beautiful, beautiful shot of the moon over an entire month. You yeah. see it swirl around it's, and it's in gorgeous HD. Yeah, and it, it's, uh, it's strange. You, you don't think of the moon doing that. I mean, if you observed it and carefully drew it and took photographs over a long period of time, you would notice that the moon oscillates side to side a little bit. It just mm. wobbles a little bit. So it's keeping the same face, but a little bit more than 50%. You can actually see about uh, roughly 70% of the moon's surface because it wobbles a little bit. But the bits around the edge are so foreshortened that you can't really right. see much on there. So we tend to focus on the bit the bit in the middle that faces us properly and permanently. So, uh, yeah, so that, that wobble is caused by the fact that the moon's orbit around the Earth is not a circle. If it was a circle, it wouldn't do that. It oh. would stay very steady. Hmm. But uh, that wobbling is caused by the fact that it, because the orbit is an ellipse, then when it's closest to the Earth during what we call perigee moon, the moon is actually moving faster, and so it gets a little ahead of itself. And then oh. when it's at the apogee, the opposite, when it's the furthest distance from the Earth, mm-hmm. uh, then it's a little bit further. And it's about a 5% difference between those. I mean, it's it's not a small amount. That's why we see the supermoon. The supermoon is, happens to be a, a full moon where the moon also is at the perigee of its orbit. In other words, the closest to Earth, so it appears bigger to us. Right. If you look at the opposite one and put them side by side, there's a significant difference between the moon apogee and the moon at perigee. And we can thank it's Mr. Kepler, isn't it, from hundreds and hundreds of years That's ago. That's right. Kepler was the first one that worked out just from observations that mm. things orbited following an elliptical path that took Newton's analysis and Mm. genius to show mathematically why that followed from very simple assumptions about the theory of gravity Mm. and that that was a consequence of that. Oh, and uh, sorry, I should have mentioned it as soon as we started. Matt Visser, the Hector Medal for braininess from the Royal Society, spoke with him about what he does, black holes and cosmology and all all that sort of stuff. You know Matt? Yes, indeed. A national treasure in cosmology and uh, Mm. I haven't seen him for a few years now, but he'd given some great talks uh, on black holes. Yeah. Really uh, stunning stuff. Um, and tonight, is it International Look at the Moon Night or something along these it lines? It is, it is. 
It's uh, International Observe the Moon Night. Of course, we get our night starts earlier than everyone else's night, pretty much, right. uh, on Earth. So we, we get an early start. We see it a little earlier than people in Britain. Well, mm. see it, they see it 12 hours later. Yeah, so it's a good time. If the sky's clear tonight, then uh, get out and have a look. You can just use your eyes, but if you've got binoculars, pull out your binoculars and hold them steady on a window ledge or on a yeah. fence post or something like that. That's the trick, getting them steady. Binoculars yeah. are magnificent yeah. So some people have cameras mounts and things like that you can put them on a tripod uh, but you know basically just I've always found just sort of leaning on a post is good enough yeah. and and if you get your binoculars focused properly you'll see craters on the moon with your binoculars beautifully clear and uh, sharp as a razor it's uh, and you'll see the uh, big dark blotchy areas the mare uh, which are you know the, those are ancient huge impact sites. Those are ones that were so huge it melted all that part of the moon and it formed uh, basically a sea of lava that took a long time to cool off. This basalt, the same stuff as uh, in the lava fields around Auckland. So mm. when you see curbstones in Auckland are made from the old basalt rocks, that's a, pretty much the same sort of stuff that's on the moon. Yeah. And that make, makes that darker grey colour that uh, forms those, they call them seas, because ancient people imagined that the, they were oceans but uh, so they've got all names that suggest oceans mm. sea of crises and so on like that but they're of course they're just lava f old ancient lava flows so those features formed on the moon around about um, 3.7 billion years ago well you're looking at old stuff it's old stuff and it hasn't really changed much in fact you know this i was thinking about it you know before this uh, talking to you is that, that really the um there's no feature on the moon that you can see with your eyes without an optical mm. instrument that uh, have changed in a billion years. Oh, good heavens, really. Or close to a billion years. I think the crater Tycho, which you can see at full moon, is a bright sort of spot. It has all those white dated, streaks coming that's out right. of it. That's right. That's a relatively recent impact that at 700 million years ago. Oh, right, yesterday. Yeah. Effectively, there was no life on Earth then. Right. Also, uh, the bigger point, life on the physical earth, yeah. life in water. In water. Yeah. But the um, thing about using binoculars, just from the little bit of stargazing I've done, in some ways it's more satisfying because you've got that stereo view yeah. as well um, with the telescopes that, that you can hire or most of them you get. You know, it's one eye. That's right. And it's different, isn't and it? It's more relaxing for your your eyes to look through two yeah. eyepieces at the same time. You just sort of move the markers in and out to get them space for your eyes because everybody, if you're observing with a group, everyone's going to be changing them to fit their eyes. But, yeah. Um, yeah, there's a few little things to know about getting binoculars perfect but you know it's uh, so long as they haven't been dropped from a great height and yeah. optics is all mushed <laughs> up inside then then they're good but you can buy a uh, you know perfectly useful pair of binoculars say 10 by 50 7 by 50 something like that you can buy them from 100 bucks they're fine don't you don't need to go and spend hundreds and hundreds of dollars yeah. on binoculars okay there are some space weather lectures and we've got a link if you want to book a seat what's happening what's space weather oh space weather is all to do with the activity on the sun uh, producing uh, flares and eruptions on the sun and that when the sun blows off stuff it comes across space these charged particles they run into our ionosphere and our atmosphere and they produce things like aurora uh, which you can see from you know deep south in New Zealand. Ian Griffin, who's one of the speakers, uh, the director of the Otago Museums, um, been doing fantastic work chasing down aurora, not only from in his backyard around Otago, but uh, taking two airliners. Mm. 
booking two airliners and taking a whole lot of people down. That's commitment. Yeah, yeah, it's phenomenal. It's uh, just an amazing idea. And flying down towards Antarctica at night uh, to see the aurora even better from up at uh, like 30,000, 40,000 feet. Yeah. And I've heard him talk about the aurora. It's uh, not, a, uh, not a talk to be missed, so really worth uh, going okay. to see that. And... Uh, the New Zealand Astrophotography Exhibition. That's on at Auckland's Stardome. That's right. And we'll be touring the country. Yes, it's going to Auckland, Wellington and Christchurch as far as I'm aware, but it might be going to some other places as well. It just shows the amazing depth of talent that New Zealand astrophotographers have developed. A, we've got a fantastic landscape, so a lot of the photographers are incorporating the landscape into their pictures. Mm. Picture the Milky Way arching over the Southern Alps or over Southern Lakes or in waterfalls, um, seashores, all that sort of stuff. It's uh, it's tremendously artistic uh, sort of work, as well as the the other people that uh, use their telescopes into image uh, like the planets. Um, Mars' uh, opposition this year was a bit disappointing because it was obscured by cloud, right. uh, um, basically dust, dust, mar- yeah. uh, dust, dust storms on Mars, so that uh, was a bit of a disappointment. But uh, there's, you know, the the creativity of New Zealand astrophotographers is right up with any in the world. Great, and on the webpage as well, you'll be seeing this beautiful full Earth. This looks so much like the picture that uh, came from one of the Apollo uh, expeditions. Is it when was it Apollo, Apollo eight, 8 and it came around? Dave. They saw the rising Earth. But this is just, it was taken not 2015. Yeah. And oh, how much, we've come along. Yeah, yeah, much better instruments nowadays, of course. And this was taken by the unmanned uh, orbiter, Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, NASA's orbiter, that's mapping the moon's surface. And it's got phenomenal cameras they can image things as small as a uh, footprint on the moon pretty much uh, that that scale so mm. they've of course they've imaged the uh, all the apollo landing sites and so on which are interesting but uh yeah so this is a beautiful snap of the uh, full moon rising um above the moon's horizon mm. um and bear in mind the moon's horizon's a lot closer than the earth's horizon i mean we're the earth's a much bigger body so right. the moon's horizon's only a few kilometers away everywhere's a cliff yeah that's right yeah, sort of, <laughs> <laughs> yeah so um yeah so it's a it's a great image and of course you know it makes you think about um you know if you're actually on the moon and wanting to observe the earth what would you see we're used to the idea that when we look at the moon in our sky, it's going across our sky, and each night you hold your hand up at the ends, it moves about the width of your fist each night, boom, mm. boom, boom, as it goes across the sky. Um, and uh, But that's not so for the moon on the moon. If you're looking back at the moon, at the Earth from the moon, the moon always keeps the same face towards the Earth. So yeah. the Earth is always in your sky. If you're on the side of the Earth facing, on the side of the Moon facing the Earth, not on the far side, but on the side where you can see the Earth, the Earth always stays in the same but position you'd see relative different, to the horizon. You would see different continents and bits That's of the right. Earth. Well, you'll see the Earth rotating. The Earth turns in 24 hours. Um, the clouds would be constantly changing. And when you had a, a new Earth, in other words, the Sun was shining down on you, you were on a, you, you're standing in the middle of the lunar disk and it's a full Moon viewed from Earth, then, of course, it's a dark Earth looking back. Mm. Um, and uh, it's possible you might even pick out one or two cities' lights at night. Right. Um, but you are 240,000 miles away, aren't you? That's right. Yeah. Uh, but with a telescope, you'd see lots of cities yeah. at night uh, from that side. OK. Now, to Mars, maybe uh, the best candidate for life, although some moons are looking 
pretty damn flash as well. But this lake raised the stakes, or lowered the odds, shall yes. we say, for well, Mars. Well, you know, it's, uh, I, I'd say that it's um, it's very likely that the lake is there, but it's uh, it's sort of a the sort of limit of detection sort of thing. So they're constantly, um, you know, they're continuing to measure um, and uh, look at other places. That's only a tiny area of the polar cap that they've detected this lake. Mm. It's around about, I actually checked up recently on Google Earth, the size of the lake they're talking about is roughly the size of Lake Tekapo, okay. where Mount John is. So lots of people have been there, been mm-hmm. up on Mount John and looked at the wonderful scenery. That lake is roughly the size of what they think they've detected under the ice can, uh, the south pole of Mars. No black stilts there though, and it might, it might, <laughs> it might be <laughs> rather salty. Yes, it would have to be. I mean, in order for it to have liquid water at those at minus 67 Celsius, uh, it would have to be very, very briny, salty mixture. And so salty that um, we don't have any examples of Earth life that really could exist at that in that but they they could they certainly could adapt and we've shown that if, if you you know probably if you gave them the opportunity they uh, life uh, or earth life forms could adapt to that sort of level of brininess but it does affect the chemistry of the way cells work and everything else mm. so we don't know there's life there um the sign will be methane maybe using out of course you know, in future exploration, they're going to want to try to bore through that ice cap. That's the first thought, isn't it? That, well, that's what they did in Antarctica. They bored into the Vost- Lake Vostok under the Arctic ice, Antarctic ice sheet. Um, and this was very controversial. The Russian scientists did it and uh, was sort of was a big thing at the time that, well, you know, this was 2012, um, and they sort of pointed out they extracted water from there and said, well, there's life forms there. And everyone mm. thought, well, that's amazing. It's been cut off for millions of years from the rest of Earth. This is our life. However, it turned out that there was all sorts of contamination in the drilling fluid they were using to do the drilling that came from up top. So that's why there'd be enormous scientific uh, objections to drilling through this ice cap. In that manner. In, the, in that way, I mean, there's, they'll be looking at sort of other ways to try to work it out. And one of the things is that if you've got life forms doing things and they give off byproducts like methane, and that methane, if you've got a whole lot of bacteria or something like that in this in briny lake, then that methane will gradually seep to the surface. So if you see a seasonal changes um, in the methane emitting from that part of then then that would be a good indication that there's possibly and not not a unique not not a guarantee but a, a good indication that it's mm. like that and it's so much easier to do it on mars to get to mars and to put equipment on mars and do experiments on mars and we go he then it is to say to go to europa wow. yeah because europa it's, it's I mean, jupiter yeah well it's yeah. there's all sorts of difficulties going to europa i mean it's got no atmosphere it's a smaller body it's much harder to land on right um the environment because of the radiation belts around jupiter are so yeah. savage that your equipment would be sort of in danger of being sort of trashed all the okay. time so and the distance and cost so this looks like the best opportunity to really start thinking about how to you know yeah. test this and and continue surveying the ice caps with this um, radar, mm. Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter. That's uh, the European spacecraft that's doing the. It's got ground penetrating radar and it can look down uh, down to about a couple of kilometres below the ice. Wow! So um, okay. And uh, the, the longer it keeps going, the longer the more certain they'll become that that's that it is actually real.
Okay. Um, oh, you went and saw First Man. What's it like? I yeah, I liked it. Of course, it's, you know, being sort of just in space about Neil Armstrong. And so on. Of course, absolutely. Yeah, it's the story of uh, basically the Apollo Eleven, uh, even moving up to the Apollo Eleven mission. Um, uh, yeah, it was a very vivid graphic display. I thought the representation on the lunar surface was pretty good. Um, ah. You know, I mean, that's hard to do because you know you've got a you've got no atmosphere on the moon and also uh, you know about a fifth or a sixth of the gravity so when you walk along um particles off your boots sort of move in a perfect parabola on the moon they oh, don't on earth because right. of the atmosphere and also the gravity changes things so you can't really just do slow motion it's not quite the same no it's the uh, often the trick but to the astronomer's eye to the astronomer's <laughs> eye yeah but uh, they did uh, i thought that their viewers and i've actually just been looking at all the apollo 11 original photographs there nasa's got this huge website where all the photos from the apollo missions and a lot of other missions they did but particularly the apollo ones um were taken with a very high resolution and you can just go to that website and download them. Um, maybe we'll so post, we'll th- post thank you, link. American people, taxpayer. Yeah, well, that's right, and no no charge, and you get these phenomenal, they were taken with Hasselblad cameras, you know, like the, the top technology cameras of their day, um, and they've been super high-res scanned, you can get all the images, there's no, uh, nothing's hidden. Um, <laughs> oh, that's is that so, what they told you? Well, yeah, and uh, <laughs> it's but these are some of these iconic pictures. But when you can get one down on your computer, that's actually as high res than you've ever seen in a magazine. Mm. It's really is something stunning about it, and the and the, the crispness of the uh, scene and the optics and everything. It's it is phenomenal. Well, we're next uh, we we should put up the link to that yeah site where okay. you can go. And not only that, uh, Apollo Eleven, all the all the Apollo missions, all right, right through to Apollo Seventeen. Okay, um, now. Hubble uh, equipment news. Um, it went bung, it got stuck. What's happening? Well, it's still in hibernation mode, which is a safe mode. It's just sort of hunkered down until they, uh, the scientists who run it and the engineers who run it uh, figure out what to do. Um, the, uh, so the, uh, just to recap, the, the little spinning wheels, reaction wheels that they've got, uh, it's got six of them. It needs three of these little spinning wheels uh, to be working to give the perfect operation of the telescope. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're using, uh, basically, they're just little wheels that if you have one, you can you can turn the telescope in a particular direction by just choosing that wheel and then just speeding it up and slowing it down right. so the telescope will just react because it's, it's not constrained by anything. So it's just laws of physics that cause Newton. it. Newton, for every That's action, right. there's That's something. Right. Exactly, it is Newton. Um, and uh, so, but... They're now they've now down to only two wheels that work. So they started off with six. Uh, Twenty oh nine, I think, was the last servicing mission they did. Uh-huh. So all of them replaced, all six of them. They're using three at a time, um, and now they're just down to two that actually work. What's wrong with the other ones? Oh, they just give up the ghost after a while. I mean, oh. they're spinning there for ages. There's probably cosmic radiation affecting their electronics. I I, but the, the new ones that were installed in 2009 were supposed to be um, five-time longer shelf um, operational life. So there was hope to, that the Hubble would continue working and be usable through to the time when the... Yeah. Uh, the next space telescope. And available. who keeps the warranty and the receipt? <laughs> <laughs> really? Well, they, they, it turns out that they can actually operate. This is a likely scenario that there's two wheels that are working. They're likely to 
put one to sleep, stop it, and operate the telescope with just one wheel. You can do it. Uh, you're limited a bit more in what you can look at and where you can point to and things like that, but they can schedule that. It just means somebody might have to wait longer before their galaxy that they want to image uh, right. becomes accessible with a single reaction wheel. So it's, um, you know, the... the, the the, the positive side of it is when you think of all the things that the Hubble Space Telescope's overcome, the optics was wrong, uh, all sorts of issues, the cameras have all been swapped out twice, uh, it's, uh, it's, and it's, it's 30 years on and it's still usable. Yeah. Uh, the, a lot of the people who look after the telescope are very confident that it'll be running for quite a few more years. Yet. Yeah, I had the idea that it would just be there forever. You but, do. Well, it will yeah. be there probably for a lifetime. Yeah, time. yeah but working. <laughs> but, you know, probably in like 30, 40 years you could probably do a tourist trip up and visit mm. it. All going well. <laughs> um, yeah, all right. Um, and so, it, Hubble, it does have an expandable time and we're relying on James Webb to be the next big That's thing, right. aren't we? Yeah, so unfortunately James Webb isn't being launched now. The latest launch date is sort of in uh, about April, I think, 2021. Mm -hmm. So that's, uh, you know, we're still talking three years really before that's... Okay, but it is the operational. next that, big that, thing, That is the next big thing. But there are some other telescopes up there doing a lot of great stuff, but the James Webb has special... Uh, capabilities to look for, you know, exoplanets and uh, and and just probe the the far reaches of the universe in a way that no other telescope's ever done. Even Would it Hubble. do everything that the Hubble does? Yeah, it's, it's working in for it's uh, Hubble uh, can look at the shorter wavelengths like ultraviolet and things. Mm. It, the James Webb is designed to work mainly in the longer wavelengths of light, which is what you get from the very distant regions of the universe. Will it take pretty pictures? Oh yeah. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. All right. That's, yeah. Six and a half metre mirror, of course. The Hubble's about two and a half. Right, visible light. Uh, but it's, yeah, well, it's sort of in the red, infrared part oh, of the okay. spectrum. Yeah. All right. So, uh, they'll, but they'll fix it down. They'll make it look in like real life for you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, lovely stuff, Grant. Thank you very much. Um, and astronomy slash cosmology, our special, um, celebrating the Royal Society and the. Uh, Hector Medal going to Matt Visser of Victoria University. Hope you enjoyed him as well. Thank you, Grant. Pleasure, Graham. Ah, weekend Variety. Wireless. Just a reminder, there are those links which are associated with astronomy with Grant Christie today up on the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage. Go have a look. The moon thing is amazing and what a gorgeous picture of the Earth from the moon as well. Kind of a replica of the one that was taken in 1968. Go take it in. Uh... What a week. What a weird week. Um, politics I, I generally glaze over, but this was more than politics, wasn't it? Does anyone else get the feeling that it's that classic case of um, they're hoping that two wrongs make a who cares? And the timing of everything. We shall discuss in detail all this stuff with uh, David Lee Roth. Uh, amazing that a rock musician could fall so far in one week. Okay, uh, new sport and weather coming up very shortly, and in the next hour, we're going to go straight into the world of human statistics, where the wealthy take their holidays worldwide. You will be surprised. There are some... F Why go there? Find out after the news.